Welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome to ED ECMO. This is ED ECMO. All right, ED ECMO. This month we have a really cool conversation. You heard us talk with Joe DeBose about this distal perfusion catheter. And I want to tell you, this all stemmed out of an email from Chris Couch, EM intensive care doc out of Dallas, Texas. I actually went out and spoke with them several years ago, and Chris has just made a fantastic career out of going from EM into ICU. He's now in the CT ICU and the trauma ICU at Baylor. Chris, thanks for joining us today. Glad to be here, Zach. And with him, he's brought along Omar Hernandez, the ECMO program coordinator. And the question that we're looking at today, as we talked with Joe, just you heard um, in the last episode, about this distal perfusion catheter. Chris, give me some some framework on, on how this question and why this is so important. So this is an often overlooked issue that we see in peripherally cannulated VA ECMO patients. I think the Achilles heel for eCPR is clearly going to be a uh, neurologic outcome in these patients and, and really what their cerebral perfusion was with CPR and, and their downtime. Um, but looking at VA ECMO overall, all the patients that we manage, not just the uh, uh, eCPR subset, it really comes down to, you know, do we have a bridge to something as far as definitive heart failure uh, therapies, whether it be a VAD, um, whether it be heart transplants or recovery in some cases, uh, one of the issues that we see is limb ischemia from these peripheral insertions. And oftentimes, like I said, it's it's overlooked. Uh, if you look at the ELSO Red Book, if you look at other texts or review articles, it really is a footnote um, in describing technique. They talk about placing these catheters. They may recommend some sizes and some ideal flow rates, but they really don't go beyond that other than saying maybe some anti-grade perfusion with SFA. Some people have talked about posterior TIB, but it's really often overlooked and I think what we should probably start doing as a, as a field is actually treating this time to distal perfusion catheter or DPC placement, similar to how we treat tourniquet times uh, in the trauma patients and during orthopedic procedures. Ah, I like it. So in the, in the previous conversation with Joe, I, I, kind of, I feel the same way as you do. Like this is, this is an important time to getting that catheter in is important, especially because these patients are so sick, they're on the edge anyway, and any extra hit or extra reperfusion injury that we give to them is potentially the, the straw that broke the camel's back. Yeah, that's certainly true. And the other thing, too, is it's not just as easy as, as just simply, oh, go ahead and put the catheter in. I mean, there's some real technical issues that we face, uh, especially if we don't have a wire in place in the SFA prior to actually going on pump. Um, you know, unless they have a lot of atherosclerosis that uh, is kind of stenting open that SFA, which has issues in and of itself, a lot of times this vessel's collapsed because it has no flow in it, hence why we're actually putting the catheter in. And, um, you know, they've been heparinized. And so just even small sticks with a needle, finder needle, uh, can result in, in big hematomas. Um, and like I said, not just at our institution, but I imagine nationally people have problems with even going down to a cut down. We've had skilled vascular and cardiothoracic surgeons uh, have to search around to actually find the SFA and once again, uh, you know, we're on the clock for this. Uh, and so there is there is clearly some malperfusion before they went on pump. And now they're not getting perfused at all in that leg. And so it really is uh, something that has to be done in a timely fashion. And it's not always that easy. All right. So we got the problem. 
we've got a couple of solutions, which we talked about before, which is the distal tibial or distal posterior tibial, dorsalis pedis uh, cannulation, SFA cannulation. Give us some guidance. Where where should we be looking at as far as the, the money shot? I, I think the money's in doing an anti-grade perfusion uh, in the SFA. Hmm. Um, we're at, at Baylor, we're currently trying to protocolize this and, and really actually develop a system to this because, you know, right now, like a lot of other centers, we have the recommendations that you would see in the red book. Here's your options. We'd like a catheter this size to this size, and we should probably be putting these in to limit limb ischemia. But that's where it really stops. What we're trying to do is have more of a comprehensive approach. Ideally, you would like to percutaneously place a larger distal perfusion catheter in the SFA. That's the ideal situation. But the problem is when you can't get that, what do we do from there? And it's really going to be dependent upon who the operator is, what time of day it is, uh, you know, we develop hematomas and then kind of when to bail out and go somewhere else. And the question is, if you can't get a percutaneous SFA, what do you do next? Do you do a cut down? You may not have a surgeon immediately at the bedside to do that. Um, do you bail out and, and do a DP or PT percutaneously, um, while you're trying to get a surgeon to do that? Um, there are several different ways to approach it. And unfortunately there's a paucity of literature out there to really give any guidance at all. Yeah, and so in your experience, in your institution, are, you're placing these catheters, you're doing the SFA cannulation? Yeah, um, and you know, the other thing too is we'll have people that get transferred in because there's you know, uh, cardiothoracic surgeons that feel comfortable with the initial cannulation um, with the larger cannulas and then transfer them in. But once again, it's somewhat of an afterthought or they may have some weak pulses and so they get transferred in and it's really up to us. Uh, the other thing, too, is that not a lot of, um, you know, older cardiothoracic surgeons have, have a ton of experience probably in ultrasound. And so a lot of times they're doing blind percutaneous sticks uh, unless they go for a cut down, which once again is time consuming on a patient who just arrested uh, or is once again in cardiogenic shock and sent here for further options. Um, and so that's one of the things we're seeing. So sometimes people will have uh, a few hours of downtime already. And like I said, we're on the clock. So one of the things that we teach at Reanimate is we teach all the participants how to do a cut down, and we show them where the vessels are, and we and part of this is out of I think my experience in Paris, where we, that's what they do. They do the distal perfusion catheter immediately right there with a cut down. Do you think this is a skill set that intensivists and ER docs and cardiologists can learn to place these catheters more quickly? Uh, I think it has to be, um, but I think the question is doing cut downs. So are you suggesting that? perhaps we should be switching entirely over to cut downs or just having it as, as part of the, the tool set of, of whoever the cannulator is? I think my opinion is that it should be in the skill set. I think that should be something that's learned. Now, that's actually just for initial cannulation with the larger cannulas, not even the distal perfusion catheter. I think that that is something that you kind of need to know how to do so that on patients where you have trouble or patients that are logistically problematic, very obese, they got a lot of tissue in there, or they're maybe really atherosclerotic, that you have some salvage technique to get the catheters in. Now, when you have the advantage of doing the cut down, I do think it makes that distal perfusion catheter stick a lot easier. Yep, much easier. Yep. Um, well, and the other thing, too, is... I, I get it. We're doing CPR. Um, you know, we're using Lucas devices. And so as long as we think that that Lucas device is adequately placed, I know that the mechanical CPR hasn't shown an advantage over 
healthcare provider CPR. I think some of that's probably related to positioning of the Lucas device or whatever mechanical CPR device you're using. You know, we've seen this happen where uh, somebody codes in the ED and we get them on a Lucas very quickly and their blood's still pretty dark and, uh, you know, it has been a short downtime. And when I've looked before, you know, the area of maximal compression is kind of overlying the LVOT. Uh, you know, these devices do leave some abrasion, so it's pretty easy to go back and actually see what it was centered over. But I think if it's an adequately positioned uh, Lucas device, I mean, one argument is the two seconds it takes to, to try and throw a wire down the SFA may save you in the long run. And so uh, that's another argument. I wouldn't necessarily spend a lot of time on it, but if you think you can get it quickly, uh, you should. You know, the other thing, too, is, like I said, not all of our patients arrest right in front of us. And so we may have some idea that somebody's kind of circling the drain. And that's a time where we'll talk and actually try and get placeholder lines in, uh, wire in, an arterial line in um, before they actually go into cardiac arrest and uh, make it a little bit easier for us. Mm. Yeah, certainly the placeholder line is key. Now, getting the distal perfusion catheter in, do you, I always have a fear that we're going to cannulate the, uh, the deep vessel, the deep femoral vessel. And then do you have confirmation? Do you have experience with that in your, in your ICU when you're doing this sort of on patients that have had an arrest at the outside hospital and the CT surgeons already did all the work and now you're trying to kind of mop up the end of it? Yeah. And yeah, we're trying to confirm. So obviously we'll use ultrasound first and see if we can visualize something. Sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. Um, other methods that we employ, uh, you can place a guide wire down uh, directed towards the popliteal. And uh, if you're in the profunda, the deeper vessel, your wire advancement's only going to be a couple centimeters, right? Mm, yeah. um, so if it's able to go a little bit more further towards the knee, um, you have a pretty good idea that you're in a good spot. Um, other things that you can do is, once again, looking at uh, Doppler flow distally, right? So if you're having Doppler flow distally, it's you know monophasic you know, continuous, um, that's one thing that's reassuring for us. People have looked at other things, um, you know, not in America, but uh, some other studies, I believe uh, one Russian and one Korean study looked at using echo contrasting agents to be able to see, you know, currently it's not FDA approved for intraarterial injection, although we do use it to evaluate aneurysms. So more to come on that one. Um, but I think another key component to evaluating position um, as well as function of the distal perfusion catheter is having some way of actually assessing the anatomy distal to that. Um, and then we can actually take care of that with uh, uh, contrast. And so we can either do kind of a poor man's fluoro and actually just shoot serial plane films um, with contrast, or you can get a C-arm up there and actually do that. Ooh, I really like that. So you can you can just do your own little angio and see, hey, yes, I am going down the right thing. So two great pearls there. One is the wire. If the wire stops at an inch, then you're not in the right vessel. And two, you can shoot a, an x-ray while you give them a little bit of contrast and then see what's uh, if you're getting it all the way down. Because that's the other consideration I think Joe mentioned was that, hey, sometimes even if you're in the deep, you can still get enough collaterals to get down to the legs. True. And then the other issue, too, is, I mean, there can be thrombus that is already formed uh, distal to that. So your distal perfusion catheter may be in an adequate place. And keep in mind, the distal perfusion thing is not immediately after placing this. The issues of troubleshooting this 
happen for days while we're managing them in the ICU. And so it's not uncommon to have uh, some kinking, some, you know, this is passive flow essentially coming off of your main cannula. It's not a separate pump or anything. Um, so there is definitely potential after the initial insertion to actually have issues with reducible perfusion catheter. And the question is, did uh, hematoma and swelling cause it to elevate out of the vessel, especially in a larger patient? I mean, these are only uh, 11 centimeters or so at least for the ones that we have, that can happen. Obviously, patients can start getting turned and, and things can kind of get torqued out um, or it can clot off. And, and so uh, it's, it's a real issue, not just on the initial insertion, but subsequently. And that's why I think using some degree of, uh, you know, radiopaque contrast can not only confirm you're still in a, a good spot, but make sure no thrombus migrated distally and actually lodged in the popliteal vessel or something like that. Mm, I love it. Yeah, the flow dynamics of that right angle off of the arterial catheter is just terrible. So you're not getting, I mean, you're only getting whatever. And then if you turn on the, the down the flows of the pump, you know, that even decreases the flow down to the leg even more. So, yeah, I think you're totally right as far as this is a, a three, five-day assessment, not just an immediate, did we get it into the right vessel. Yeah, and we have some plain films available that we can send you uh, for show notes and stuff like that to, to demonstrate that three-vessel runoff. And the other nice thing, too, is then you know you're not in a vein because you'd start to see valves. Um, so, you, you know, you, you've confirmed that you're, in fact, in an artery and the artery is patent uh, and that you haven't caused any issues distally. You know, because some of the stuff, you know, we have Dopplers on all these patients, but you have to understand these people are clamped down. Uh, they're pretty sick. We're cooling them. And so it's not always easy to get Doppler signals initially. And the initial instinct for all this is to is to kind of let these patients settle out and reassess in an hour or two. But once again, if we're in a wrong spot, we're behind the eight ball on this. So how about, uh, do you have recommendations as far as the size of the catheter and the type of the catheter that we should be placing into, into this vessel? So... I think nationally, we're still trying to sort that out. I mean, we've resorted, and it, it really started with the cardiothoracic surgeon that really started the program in 2012, having a preference for nine French. It may be kind of a, things are bigger in Texas, and maybe that's why we have that approach. One of the problems with that, though, is the stopcock that's actually mated to it really limits it to about a seven French anyways. So you're having to put a larger catheter in, but you probably don't have the flow benefits. I mean, a lot of these catheters were meant for or interventional cardiology procedures, not necessarily for dedicated, you know, distal limb perfusion for a longer period of time on ECMO. And so we have to keep in mind that, that that's probably the reason why it is engineered that way. Um, we do use the Aero uh, Superflex Teleflexes. And so we just got a shipment after talking about this issue further uh, this week of seven Frenches that we're going to be trialing that are wire reinforced. Yeah, and so do you feel in, at an advantage of having the wire reinforced catheters? Yes, yes. As far as being kink resistant, I mean, you know, once again, if you're taking a little bit of a, of a right angle, depending on your approach, um, you know, kinking can obviously be flow limiting and cause uh, thrombus or, or limb ischemia there. I think it is important to note that we start with a micropuncture needle whenever we put these catheters in and then we upsize. The reason for that is the micropuncture uh, needle and sheath, uh, that's five French. And so worst case scenario, you bail out and you keep your five French and, and we have some limb perfusion. And once again, there's plenty of centers that probably use five French anyways. It's on the lower end of the recommendations, uh, but it can be adequate in, in a lot of patients. 
Um, but the other nice thing about that is because you're using a micropuncture, you're having minimal trauma to this vessel while you're trying to get it um, and therefore decreasing hematoma formation and making sure that you have a good stick and that you can see your wire go in and kind of save you problems on the back end. Love it. Love it. Those are great pearls. Omar, your experience, what, what has been your experience with these distal perfusion catheters at Baylor? Uh, kind of reiterate what Dr. Katcha said, is really the Achilles heel of ECMO. I mean, it's, I've seen in so many cases where if the distal perfusion is not placed right away or it's not placed correctly, I mean, it can dictate the whole patient. I mean, it can go one way or another. But if it's done correctly, I mean, the ECMO run goes pretty smooth. And I mean, and again, going back to the catheter size, and it's, I think it's one of those key key points, like Dr. Cow said, is it's make sure that you put it in the right place. Okay, so where do we, what what have you seen as far as places where we screw this up? Where are the th- places that maybe the programs that are less experienced than yours, but we can draw some some guidance from from the monitoring as well as the placement of these catheters? Okay, well, it's a lot there, but I think um, the idea of having a wire placed uh, before you start ECMO, I think that's key, because, uh, again, obviously, when you try to put ECMO on a patient, it's already uh, either doing, getting compressions or they're super unstable. That's not the first thing that comes to mind, but the Dr. Cow said, if you, you know, if you take your time, maybe two, three seconds, minutes, whatever, put the wire down first, then it's going to make your life a lot easier. Because once you put the cannulas in, your space is going to be limited to put the distal perfusion afterwards. Uh, the other thing, uh, at, you know, new centers should kind of be monitoring is it's don't just rely on, on on pulses or Doppler pulses for the for the lower leg. I think uh, sometimes with these patients, when you put them on ECMO, you lose pulsatility, and so all you have is a flow or Doppler flow. And sometimes it's there, sometimes it's not there. So you need some other means of monitoring perfusion down to the leg. And that's where I think uh, the nearest technology comes in. And that's something that we started doing recently. Uh, we developed our own protocol. And, and I think we have actually good numbers. Uh, it shows that, you know, the leg is being perfused versus not being perfused. And it's another measurement. It's another uh, more objective assessment rather than a subjective. Okay, Chris, there's something that maybe I didn't fully appreciate. And maybe you've already said this. You've got somebody, you're crashing them onto ECMO. You've got you, do you use Amplatz wires or um, stiff wires? Yes. So you've got, you're putting in your arterial line. You've got your Amplatz wire all the way up. You've confirmed it with ultrasound. Do you dilate next or do you put in the SFA wire as well? I I think it comes down to how difficult you think it's going to be to get the SFA in. If it's a larger patient... Uh, or it's a younger patient that's not going to have, you know, some atherosclerosis to stent things open. I mean, honestly, if, if they're well supported with the Lucas device, I, I think we get to the, it, it's really this whole idea of Festino Lente, right? I mean, you kind of want to rush slowly. Um, I, I think that taking the extra, I mean, really putting a wire in, I mean, you already have your, your needles and everything up and you've got your ultrasound ready to rock and roll, turning the probe onto the lower extremity real quick and hitting that and putting a wire in and then going back to where you're at, really, I, I, like I said, I think it saves you in the long run because uh, just there's so many issues with the, with the limb ischemia. And, and like I said, you need to bridge them to something. So if this person develops limb ischemia and it's under-recognized, you're talking about having thrombectomies and fasciotomies. And in the worst case scenario, you're getting above the knee amputation. 
which most places are not going to put somebody uh, through a heart transplant or put a uh, an LVAD in them, uh, you know, for two reasons. One is sepsis concerns. And the other thing is clearly if they have limb ischemia, they went into rhabdo and we have such a high incidence of needing dialysis initially on ECMO, it pretty much seals the deal for them. So wow. I think, I think spending that extra, you know, five or 10 seconds, it's just like anything else. There may be a hierarchy of doing something and if it's not working, then bail out and go to what your, what you really, your main goal is. But I think if you can spend that extra a uh, couple seconds to just get a wire in there as a placeholder and then avert your attention. I really don't think you're going to say, or you, it's, it's going to spend uh, too much considerable amount of time uh, in the long run. And I, I think it'll save you dividends. And I understand that may be a controversial thing, but I, I, I like I said, I think, I think people probably haven't looked at the, the limb ischemia numbers and, and clearly that's why it's underappreciated. I, I mean, I love it. You're making me think you're really making me think about changing my practice. So, yeah, because it would be nice to know how many people, how many of our patients have died because not even the overt limb ischemia, not even the ones where they had amputations, but of the patients that just had, you know, more reperfusion problems, more of those apoptotic cytokines that went back into their heart that caused them to not be able to um, push forward any forward or some neurologic issues as a result of it. So we don't we have no idea how important the limb ischemia it is, but from a just a theoretic standpoint, it could be really important. Like that time to perfusion of that leg could be really important. So let me just let me just yeah. walk you th- walk what I heard you say so that I I can understand and maybe everyone else can understand. I'm going. The patient is arresting. They're on the Lucas device. I get my needle and my ultrasound. I see the artery. I puncture the artery going towards the heart. I put my Amplatz wire all the way up. I have my wire assistant holding that wire. I then take my needle and the ultrasound at the same place, but point it down the leg, making sure that I stay. Maybe I that I that I still hit that at the common femoral artery, but that I track up into the, uh, so that I make sure that I'm in the SFA. I then put a wire into that. That wire, tell me what wire you're going to use for that stick. The wire that we're going to use for that is the micropuncture wire. So it's a 0.018 inch uh, wire. We use a a Cook 5 French. So then I'm going to use actually a different needle. I'm going to have to use one of the micropuncture needles to do that distal perfusion stick, yes? You don't have to, but like I said, I would recommend it so there's minimal trauma. Yeah, okay. And so now I've got that. I can even put that five French cannula in there. Would you recommend us doing that before we go to the big cannulas or just leave the wire sticking out of the skin? No, just leave it sticking out of the skin. If you want, okay. you can put you know, a needle driver or some sort of clamp to keep it off uh, or you know, away from your field. But all you need is a placeholder, and that's it. So I wouldn't waste any more time. Um, but the, the important thing that you said, too, is that you've already put your Amplatz wire up towards the heart. Mm-hmm. And the reason why it's important doing that before you start targeting the SFA is this. Typically, when we're doing EC. CPR, what I'll say is we, we have two cannulators and then we have two wire tenders. So we, we go on contralateral limbs. Um, basically, whoever sticks the artery first gets the arterial side. So I know it's a little bit different than how some people would, would approach it where they'd want your venous drainage on the right side so it doesn't have that kind of kink as it goes up the IBC. 
But I really think that that sticking the artery is a little bit tougher, um, especially when they're in cardiac arrest. I mean, the vein dilates pretty largely, right? I mean, doing crash femlines is pretty easy in a code situation. Uh, getting the arterial sticks a little bit harder. So basically, whoever gets the artery first, ideally we try and do it on the uh, on the left side for the reasons described above. Um, you know, we, we put that in and then once again, start working on that SFA because you wouldn't want to waste time on an SFA. Um, and then you can't get the artery on that side. Mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. This is good stuff, Chris. I, I think this is, I mean, we don't know, we don't know if this is the right thing to do, but I, it certainly has a lot of advantages. And then you actually, I, there was one other piece here. You talked about if they're not in arrest, like let's say they're peri-arrest or they just got ROSC, we have a high suspicion that they're going to go back into cardiac arrest. We're getting our placeholder lines already in uh, for our femoral artery and femoral vein in case they re-arrest. What's your approach at that point? The approach at that point is if we really think that it's going to be an issue, I, I still would put a wire in the SFA or you could even put an arterial line in there. You don't have to transduce it. You just have it up to a pressure bag to keep it patent. Uh, and then, you know, if we don't progress to that, no harm, no foul, we can take it out. Um, but once again, I think places that do this quite a bit recognize that it's just so much easier when you have these placeholders uh, already there um, and then not doing it when the patient crumps. I really like it. I, I I think this is a game changer. So yeah, so they're peri-arrest, they're post-ROSC, you get your micropuncture kit, you find the common femoral, you put a catheter down the artery, so you now have two, you maybe have a, a seven French cannula or five French cannula in the, as you're, you're transducing that vessel and you're, and you're going towards the heart, and then going away from the heart, you have another vessel that you've just sort of uh, put a maybe a stopcock on or something that can hold it there until you need it or if you need it. Yep. Yep. And this makes it so much easier to exchange. Um, and, uh, it just makes it go so much more smooth, smoothly. Uh, so I would highly recommend that. Very cool. Anything else? No. Uh, like I said, I, I think, I think the important part is once again, I, just in summary, I think we should really be treating time to distal perfusion catheter placement just as seriously as we treat tourniquet times in trauma and orthopedic procedures. I mean, people don't come in from the field with tourniquet up and not know the time that, that that's been. We need to start adjusting our mindset um, to, to giving that kind of due diligence to DPC uh, placement. I think that there's several different approaches to placing these, uh, what size, where to go. It's clearly going to be up to the patient uh, characteristics as well as the operator's skills in, in the scenario. But the idea is that we need to get something in and we need to get it in soon. Um, and then we need to continue monitoring that for complications down the road because there can be kinking, there can be malpositioning with turning, uh, these sort of things. So we have to confirm that we're in a good place, and that we don't have any complications, and then we have good distal limb flow. Um, and then once again, uh, monitoring in other ways, such as, uh, you know, the nears, which is becoming more in vogue for monitoring them. Um, so in addition to the nears, I think the other thing is that we need to be monitoring, uh, you know, physical exam and be, and be feeling these compartments and making sure they remain soft. I think one of the issues that, that we've seen, and I can imagine will be an issue in other centers is people are a little bit afraid to actually measure compartment pressures themselves. So if there's anything that, um, 
is uh, concerning based upon your NEARS data or your physical exam itself, once again, I mean, this is a game over scenario for these patients if we miss it. So my threshold for getting pressures is, is very low. Um, I think one of the issues that people have is trying to find the striker compartment measuring devices is, is a tough chore. You have to kind of walk around the ED, you know, uh, dust off, you know, certain uh, storage closets in order to try and find this. You need to hand in your, your cell phone and your ID badge to the charge nurse in order to get it and promise to bring it back. And nobody uses it that frequently to really be that skilled at it. So then the question is, can you trust the measurements that you're getting? I think an easier thing uh, that really should be done in, in ICU settings is every ICU nurse knows how to transduce pressures. Um, so what I've done before is actually uh, put an arterial line needle um, after prepping uh, the lower extremity and actually measured pressures that way. Um, and then you can basically have reliable pressures that you know um, are well calibrated and that you can probably act on. I think one of the caveats of that is making sure that you actually puncture through the fascia if they have a lot of subcutaneous uh, swelling or tissue. Um, and then the other thing is just to make sure that that catheter is not, or that needle is not clogged uh, with subcutaneous tissue. Wow. So we have to learn a couple of things from this podcast. We have to learn how to cannulate an SFA. We've got to learn how to uh, use the striker. And uh, wow, we, we, are, we are upping the game of the critical care doc today. Yeah. Well, thank you. It's been fun talking with you. Uh, Chris, this is fantastic. I, I think we're going to get some feedback. And those of you out there that have experience with this or are doing this, let us know because I want to I know what you're doing. Are you putting in the SFA cannula at the same time as your catheters? Are you transducing these uh, pressures in, in people who have concerns for compartment syndrome? Chris has mentioned so many amazing things today. And Omar, thank you for joining us today. And my pleasure, Seth. Chris, thank you so much. Thanks, Zach. From ED ECMO, this is Zach Shiner signing out.